0: Podcastle 181, for November 1st, 2011. Still Small Voice, by Ben Burgess. Rated R. This one contains violence, language, and some sex. Good times. Hello, and welcome back to Podcastle, your weekly fantasy fiction magazine. I'm Dave Thompson, and yes, you heard right. I said November 1st, which means we're kicking off our dreary Halloween cloaks and setting the place alight with fire-breathing dragons, political maneuvering, and what some would call a fantasy that permeates our own reality. I'm talking, of course, about religion. So let's kick things off briefly by discussing Guy Fawkes. Many of you may be more or less familiar with this story thanks to Alan Moore's V for Vendetta. But let me be even more brief than the Wachowski brothers. In 1605, Fox, who was a Catholic, was caught in the gunpowder plot, a conspiracy between himself and others to blow up Parliament, mainly due to religious disagreements. Fox said while being tortured, he took part in it to, quote, blow you scotch boogers back to your native mountains, unquote. One of those scotch boogers was King James, a Protestant. The plot was foiled, of course. Fox was tortured until he revealed the names of his conspirators and then executed. And the king, well, he started sponsoring this little book the year before, and it finally came out seven years later. It was a bestseller. You might have heard of it. The King James Bible. And everyone lived happily ever after. Ah, religion and the things people do in your name. You are a strange and fascinating beast. With all that in mind, this week at PodCastle, we're very proud to present our latest original, Still Small Voice, by Ben Burgess. It's worth noting that we don't run a lot of original fiction here. Mostly, we do reprints. And this will be the fifth feature-length original story we've bought. It's also the second by Ben Burgess, the other being Smokestacks Like the Arms of Gods. Ben Burgess is a graduate of Clarion West and the Stone Coast MFA program in creative writing at the University of Southern Maine. His website is benburgess.com. The story's read for you by a new ambassador here at PodCastle, David Reese Thomas. David's originally from Wales, but now teaches in Japan, and he's read stories for Starship Sofa and Pseudopod. Find him online at davidreesthomas.com. So remember, remember, the 5th of November, because here, there be dragons. Enjoy the story. Still Small Voice by Ben Burgess
1: Jack wiped the sweat off his forehead, slipped on his invisibility shawl and walked into the cafe. Outside it was a sweltering summer day, the kind of day that felt like all five of the gods had lit five flames behind the clouds and the suns themselves were sweating desperate for shade. It was the kind of day when even the wild dragon stayed out of the sky. Inside, it was cool as autumn. Henry sat at a table by himself, reading a handsomely leather-bound book. Around him, a few patrons looked up at the sound of the door opening and closing, and then turned back to their business. Under his cloak, Jack luxuriated in the artificial cool of the cafe. The heating and cooling control of the island's cafes and taverns, half magic and half mechanical, were one of the things Jack had almost forgotten to miss in his years in the West. Henry turned the pages of his book, running his finger over the lines in a picture of intent fascination. Jack sat down across from him. Henry looked up, then shook his head and went back to the book. Jack giggled. Henry looked up again. He closed his book, placed it ever so gently on the table and stood up. Jack forced himself to be quiet. Henry glanced to the left, and then to the right. His lips set in a frown of deep suspicion. Then, at last, Jack took pity on the man and pulled off his shawl. Henry staggered back. His chair clattered to the floor. Patrons at other tables turned to stare. Jack doubled over in laughter. So... Henry picked up the chair and, with a show of dignity, sat back down. I take it this is one of the western marvels you wrote me about? It is. Jack folded the shawl as he spoke. Henry stared at him. How are you doing that? Can you see it? Not a bit. I can feel it. If you stare at the damn thing for long enough, you can make out a sort of outline. But I find it best to remember where you left it. Henry shook his head and smiled. You know, when I try to picture the West, all that comes to mind are parrots and monkeys and the occasional native with a painted face, stumbling about in the heat. Yet they make things like this. Jack shrugged. They've got cities now, you know, big ones, full of white men and industry. Not to mention a good deal of the native stolen magic. I don't know if you could call the result civilized, but it is at least a great, bright, colorful show at civilization. Rather like the continent. Henry smirked. You should remember to tell that joke at court. The king's been trading threats of war with both emperors lately, so the continent is less like than ever. Wait, both emperors? The king isn't allied with Franz Louis? What else has changed since I've been gone? Clearly relishing the moment, Henry picked up the leather-bound book he'd been reading and held it up to Jack. When he spoke, he emphasized every word. You have no idea. Jack reached for the book, and Henry pulled it back. You remember the disagreement between the king and the prelate? Yes. How far had it advanced when you left for the West? Jack bit his lip. Well, the king requested special permissions to take Mistress Abigail as his fourth wife, but prelate denied this request, saying that the king must be content with the wives he already has. The king asked again, this time making several new and novel theological arguments, and was once again refused. It didn't seem to me that the disagreement had much of anywhere left to go after all that. Henry's smile strongly resembled that of a dragon that had just carried off a particularly plump and delicious sheep. Well, the king hasn't tired of finding new ways to make his request, although certain people openly wonder if he may soon tire of acknowledging the need to ask. Meanwhile, he has found some truly remarkable new ways to irritate the prelate. Jack was still trying to puzzle out that turn of phrase about tiring of acknowledging the need to ask when Henry handed him the book. Jack turned it over. He read the title and felt like he'd been whacked in the stomach. The book was one that Jack had seen many hundreds of times before. It had rested on the altar of every chapel he had ever attended. He had heard its verses chanted, then waited, sometimes with interest, although more often out of his skull with boredom, for the cleric to explain the meaning and interpretation of the ancient words. It was, without a doubt, the most important book in the entire history of the world. The Scripture of the Five Gods Jack had never been an especially pious man, but when he read those words, he immediately and instinctively performed the sign of the five, kissing the tips of all five fingers on his right hand, one after another and then placing his hand on his heart. On the front of the copy that Jack was holding, in what were now trembling hands, the title was written in the same plain islander jabber that he and Henry had just now been speaking. The king knows about this? He allows it? He didn't quite ask, is it safe to be seen with this? Has the printer been burned yet? Henry smiled and shook his head. His eyes blazed with something strange and unsettling. The king ordered it to be printed so that each subject of this great realm can benefit from a personal knowledge of the words of our holy gods. Jack could hardly have been more surprised if Henry had told him that the king had ordered all of his subjects to strip naked and cover themselves in the tribal war paint of the western natives. A dozen questions rose to the surface of his mind none of them made it to his lips what he said was huh well then anything else i should know about in the palace the king sat on a great golden throne the lesser thrones of queen gillian queen rosemary and queen anne louise made a row behind him it was hard not to notice that mistress abigail who the royal announcer referred to as the king's fiance sat in a large and plush chair that was positioned so as to complete that row. It was, indeed, the sort of chair that someone without a head for the correct subtleties might have mistaken for a throne. Behind them all, the king's dragon, Cedric, was curled up asleep. Cedric was a great red fire dragon, When he uncurled to his full height, he was taller than five men standing on one another's shoulders. His roar could shatter glass. The king had trained him to do just that, on command, generally in the presence of particularly annoying or uncooperative foreign diplomats. Most of the rest of the time, Cedric slept. As Jack approached the king, he was announced with a whole multitude of honorifics. Knight of the island, right arm of the king's majesty, beloved son of the realm. As the announcer finished, Jack scrutinized the king's expression for some clue as to the man's mood. He found nothing. For an uncomfortably long time, no one said a word. Finally, a lazy smile spread over the king's face. I was just wondering as I listened to all of that what I was thinking. Your Majesty, why on earth did I award you all of those noble-sounding titles? Jack licked his lips. I think... This was a calculated risk, but there was no point in hesitating. Either the King would laugh, or he wouldn't. I believe that, at the time, All those titles were your way of saying that I was your, you know, favorite of all of your majesty's bastard sons. An empty, horrible silence filled the throne room. Jack panicked. He needed to say something. He had to find a way to make this better. His mind was a blank. And then, with no warning, the king barked out a ferocious laugh. He leapt from his throne, strode up to Jack, and enveloped him in a bear hug. God's damn it all, but it's good to see you. You brought back gifts from the West? Jack went so limp with relief, he felt like he was going to melt into the stone floor beneath him. He fumbled for his sack and handed it over. The king fished out a wind-up mechanical monkey. Jack demonstrated its use. The king clapped his hands and laughed. The monkey clicked and clacked toward the end of the room where the queen sat in their thrones. The youngest queen, Gillian, got up to poke at it. It changed direction. She squealed in delight. The king used one hand to grip Jack's shoulder and then the other to tousle his hair. Come to think of it, I seem to remember threatening to have you killed. Uh, yes, your majesty. Do you remember why? Jack looked into the king's eyes and lied with a practised ease. Uh, no, your majesty, I I can't say that I do. Ah, the king nodded and gave him a thoughtful look. I can't remember either, but I do hate to leave old business unresolved. You'll have to let me know if it comes back to you. Now, what else have you got in that bag? That night, Jack used the invisibility shawl to visit the woman formerly known as Queen Marie. When he tiptoed into her bedchamber, she was bent over a copy of the king's new translation of the scriptures. Jack, who had never known the woman to be especially devout, watched in silent fascination from beneath his shawl as she read. At long last, she closed up the book, muttered a few words in her native tongue, and began to perform the sign of the five, something about the way she was doing the sign was subtly wrong. Jack couldn't quite place it; he started to ask her before he remembered about the shawl. At the sound of his voice. Marie perked up and looked around the room. Jack let the shawl fall down around his feet. Marie yelped and started back a moment later. Her face split into a smile. Jack lightfoot. A softly accented voice warmed him the way it always did. Back from the West, with strange magic. Is it possible that he has not entirely forgotten me? Some minutes later, Jack finally puzzled out the thing that had been bothering him before. He disentangled himself from the former Queen. Marie, I was wondering, when you did the sign earlier, you only kissed three... Marie placed a soft hand over Jack's mouth. When she spoke, her voice was warm with laughter. If I find that you come here to talk about religion, I will have to become cross with you. The daughter of the emperor Soto Vargas, Marie had been married to the king to cement a brief alliance against the emperor Claude Louis. A few months later, When the war ended and the island shifted its alliances once again, the king asked the prelate for an annulment. He was bitter that he had never seen her before agreeing to the marriage. In particular, he constantly complained about the size and the shape of the woman's nose. She looks, the king had thundered on one occasion, like a horse. Of course, Marie had been considered a great beauty at her home court. Moreover, during the months of Marie's marriage to the king, Jack had spent a great deal of time scrutinizing the queen's face. He couldn't help but think that her nose, while perhaps a touch larger than average islander noses, was on the whole remarkably ordinary and nose-like. Jack, however, had never been the sort to directly contradict the king. If the king had been a different sort of king, he might have sent Marie back to the continent. He wasn't, and he didn't. It went against the man's nature to return to Soto Vargas, something he could keep on the island. And he wished to reward Marie for not contesting the annulment. In the end, he made a great show of awarding her a household of her own, with lands, wealth, and a brand new title. She would henceforth be known as the king's beloved sister. That last bit was the only part of the arrangement that Jack had ever objected to. Look, he explained to her one night in bed. Little as either of us may ever talk about it, the king is my damned father. And him calling you by, you know, that title always makes me feel like I'm sort of fucking my aunt. A pity, the king's beloved sister nibbled on Jack's ear. Let us see what we can do about this. Two weeks after Jack's return from the West, the king announced his break with the prelate and married Mistress Abigail in a massive ceremony at court. A week after that, he found a promising young cleric to name as the new supreme bishop of the island. It was universally agreed that this gentleman was an exceedingly clever theologian, well-versed in the holy scriptures but darker rumours were whispered about him on every corner. It was said that the new Supreme Bishop had spent more time in the decadent cafes of the intellectuals than he had in his own chapel. It was said that he had three mistresses. It was said that he had long been the closest friend, a most dissolute drinking companion of the king's notoriously drunken and dandyish bastard son, Jack Lightfoot. Jack relayed each of these rumours, in turn, as he sat drinking whisky with the new Supreme Bishop. The bit about the three mistresses is nonsense, of course. I know you'd never be unfaithful to our Marie. And the part about being such a dissolute drinker is nonsense on stilts. How such a rumour would get started about a man so unable to hold his liquor is quite beyond. Henry gave Jack a playful whack in the back of the head. While he was up, he poured them each new goblets. Hmm. Jack took a sip and let the fiery liquid swish around his mouth. You do serve fine and smoky whiskey. I'll give you that much. Henry took his goblet with his right hand and spread out his left arm in an expansive gesture. Apology. Accepted. Jack clinked his glass against Henry's and took a sip. If only good taste and the ability to drink were one and the same thing, an apology is what it would have been. Jack took another sip and let the flavor spread over his tongue before it trickled down to burn his throat. It really was beautiful stuff, prepared with peat and oil and dragon fire in the north. Is what you are, Henry was saying, just fucking impertinent. That's probably why the king was going to kill you. Jack, who knew perfectly well that this wasn't true, gave his friend an impish smile. Probably. Henry was suddenly serious. Really, though? Speaking of incurring the king's displeasure. We haven't talked about this, but please, I need to be sure. Henry's face, flickering in the firelight, was drawn with concern. Jack raised his eyebrows. Yes? You have taken the oath, haven't you?" Jack let out a little laugh. Oh, that? You mean... He leapt off his chair, and knelt between his friend and the fireplace. He looked straight into Henry's eyes, and slowly intoned the words. I do forever renounce all allegiance to the false and wicked bishop of the continent, sometimes known as the prelate, and affirm that matters of true religion may be decided only by the king and those who properly appoints. Still kneeling, he reached for his goblet and took a sip. That'd be you, oh properly anointed one. Henry nodded, and in his eyes Jack caught a glimpse of all the pain and sadness the Supreme Bishop had been trying to hide all evening. Thank the gods you have that much sense. The executions start tomorrow, and I'd hate to lose you. In the West, in order to carry out the official duties which had been his a the thin excuse for going there in the first place, back when he'd felt the need to escape the king's wrath. Jack had travelled to the capitals of all of the king's colonies to meet with his majesty's governors and collect their reports to bring back to the island on his return. In between these visits, he had journeyed through the lands still held by the natives. The tribe from which he acquired his invisibility shawl had customs forbidding them from bartering with men who had not gone through their ancient rites of initiation. And thus it was that Jack had ended up on a mountaintop one chilly day in midfall, contemplating a handful of dried-up roots. His native translator held back nothing about the plant's effect. This will break your mind into a hundred pieces. Most come back from this quest, but some do not. You may die, or live out your days as a madman screaming in the woods. This you should know. You should know as well that it is the only way to become one of us. With that, the native turned around and left. Jack took a breath of cool mountain air and swallowed the roots without one more moment's hesitation. Wearing elaborate ceremonial garb, Henry stood on the raised stone platform and intoned the prayer for sinful souls about to depart for the afterlife. They were the same old words from the traditional litany, but he said them in the common tongue. May the holy gods find a way to forgive them their trespasses in the fullness of time, even these wretched ones, that one day they may find warmth and peace, bathed in holy light. May they only be punished for their transgressions for a short time, and may they then dance in the fields of paradise and know the power and the glory of the kingdom of the gods for a thousand, thousand years." The crowd shouted, Amen, and Jack managed to croak it along with them. When Henry climbed down from the platform and joined his friend in the front row, the Supreme Bishop looked like he was going to be sick. On the platform, A dozen men and women were bound to wooden stakes. They were all from old aristocratic families, too important not to be forced to say the oath and too pious to agree. Some of them ranted and yelled out their everlasting allegiance to the gods and their holy prelate. Others cried. A man in a black mask climbed onto the platform, leading a great red fire dragon that looked like a younger version of Cedric by a chain around its neck. At the man's command, the dragon sucked in air and breathed out a long and terrible flame. It burned red, then blue, and finally white. Crackling noises filled the air. Some of the condemned were already reduced to wordless, animalistic screams. Others managed to get out a few last words. Jack couldn't tell who was saying what through the blurry, burning haze of smoke and fire and bodies writhing in pain. One voice, though, stood out from the din of prayers and invocations. Whoever this woman was, her final cry was delivered in the tone and pitch of a little girl who doesn't understand why she has to get dressed for dinner, why she has to go to bed, why she can't stay out and play. All she said was, I don't want to die. That night, Henry didn't talk about the executions. He didn't show any of the emotion Jack had glimpsed the night before. Instead, over drink after drink, Henry went on about the new religious reforms. He waxed eloquent about the way the king was delivering the island from ignorance and superstition and into the light of reason and true religion. The hoarded wealth of corrupt clergymen was going to be confiscated and used to feed and clothe the poor. The new enchanted printing devices were humming along all day and all night, manufacturing enough copies of the holy scriptures that every subject could know the words of the gods for themselves. This was, Henry was sure, the dawn of a great day. I hope soon to convince the king, even to permit the clergy to marry, so they may lead honest lives. Wouldn't help you, Jack pointed out, holding up his empty goblet for another drink. Pretty sure, even if the king lets that one through, what you and I and Marie are doing couldn't be sanctified as holy matrimony, especially her being, you know, the king's beloved sister and all. Henry granted this, refilling Jack's goblet and moving on to the next point in his litany of praise to the king's great reforms. Jack responded to each new claim with a sort of grunt that didn't pretend to express an opinion. Henry ignored him and talked more and poured more drinks. When Jack was so drunk he was fairly sure the sweat covering his face and chest smelled like the peat and oil of Henry's whiskey. He asked a question. Perhaps you can clear something up for me. It seems to me that I can't remember a time in the past when the king and the prelate marched together in defence of the faith, and certain free-thinking individuals were burned as heretics on the king's orders. How precisely do the king's great reforms differ from what those men wanted? For a long beat, Jack thought Henry was going to scream, or cry, or throw his goblet into the fireplace. He didn't. He just got to his feet, found a new bottle, and sat back down to drink. A week later, exhausted and spent in bed with Marie, Jack finally got her to explain about the sign. "'It's it's been bothering me. I've seen Henry do it, too. When he's at public functions or officiating at the Great Chapel, he does it right, but when he's alone or with certain other friends, he only kisses three of his fingers.' Marie nodded, her head resting on Jack's shoulder. She said nothing. "'It must mean something.' It does. Jack waited. The silence stretched. Finally, she asked him if he had ever read the scriptures for himself. He shifted uncomfortably. Well, yeah, I've tried to, but it, it feels strange to me. When she spoke, she surprised him with her intensity. You should. Jack wanted to ask how it was that she was suddenly such an intense reformer. Wasn't everyone from the continent supposed to be loyal to the prelate? But he was sure that if he said this, she would be angry at the implication that she couldn't think for herself. In the ensuing fight, she would never get around to explaining the sign. It is like this. Months ago, after the first translated scriptures began to be circulated, Henry asked me a question. Just to lighten the mood, Jack asked, In bed? She gave him a stern look. Don't do that. We all promised each other, years ago, never to be jealous. He sighed. I'm sorry, only teasing. Go on. Henry, he asked me why we call it the scripture of the five gods. He say he has read the scriptures forward and backward, and never found any clear mention there of more gods than three. He began to suspect that these extra gods are a mere fancy of prelates. In the days that follow, we read together and pray together and think on this. In the scriptures, there is talk of the still, small voice inside, that part of you that is your truest soul, through which the gods may speak. For days, we appeal in our prayers that if we are wrong, if there truly are these other gods, they should speak to us through that still, small voice. Always, when we ask this, we hear nothing. Since then, in private, we and those who think like us make only the sign of three. Jack realized that he was shaking. Marie reached a hand over to tousle his hair. What? He stared at her. You aren't worried by this? She looked straight into his eyes. It is the truth. Jack thought for a while and at length spoke again. Doesn't it violate the oath? We all promise to let the king decide matters of religion. I'm pretty certain he would consider this a heresy. Marie shifted against him. I promise to follow the king and those he duly appoint. Henry is those he duly appoint. I do not lie. When Jack confronted Henry with the same question some days later, the Supreme Bishop's answer was much more daring. Think of it like this. Why don't we ride dragons? Huh? Well, think about it. When you went to the west, how many weeks we would see, lurching around in some boat and getting sick of your travel companions? Jack gestured for him to continue. For a dragon, the flight across the ocean would probably take a day or two. Why didn't you fly one? Why do sane people practically never try to fly dragons? I don't see what... Henry flashed his friend a strange smile. You humor me. Jack shrugged. Well, we don't, because we can't. Henry leaned forward, propping his elbows on the table between them and nearly knocking over his drink. Right, but why not? We keep them as pets and as beasts of burden. We teach them to do tricks. we lead them around with enchanted chains. Why couldn't we harness them to flyers around the world the way we break in horses? Jack sighed and dredged up the explanation he remembered being given as a child. Once he had it, he found he could recite his mother's whole speech word for word. as long as it's on the ground. A dragon can be bent to man's wishes because the ground belongs to us. The dragon's true element is the air. And once it leaves the ground, its true nature will reassert itself. No chain can guide a dragon in flight, no matter how strong the enchantment you put on the chain. Get on a dragon's back, and it might let you come along for the ride. But it will go where it pleases. You have no way of knowing where you'll end up. Henry nodded, and his eyes held a manic gleam that Jack had begun to notice there more and more of late. Exactly! The king really is doing a great thing. When he renounces the prelate and gives us all copies of the scriptures in the common tongue, he puts us on the path of reason and true religion. Let each of us have our own relationship with the gods. To do that, though, and ask us to stop where he wants us to, to only come to conclusions he likes, well, that's like putting a man on the back of a dragon and getting angry that he doesn't fly where you want him to go. I know you're fucking her. A- The king announced one crisp fall day as he and Jack walked the palace grounds. That's not why I was going to have you killed. A moment before, they had been speaking about the troll uprisings in the north and whether the king should send more troops. The abrupt change of subject stopped Jack cold. He flapped his lips. No sound came out. The king sighed. I've known for a long time and I don't care. I'm not married to the wretched woman. As far as I'm concerned, she can do what she likes. Her, and you, and my Supreme Bishop. Uh, Your Majesty, I... The King waved his hand dismissively, making several of his jeweled bracelets jangle together. Yes, yes, I know about that too. As far as I'm concerned, it's no greater sin than visiting a whorehouse. Jack flushed. Only long years of practice in deference to the king stopped him from punching the man in the face. Instead, he breathed in and out, slowly, until he regained his composure. Thank you, your majesty. Quite. The problem is is that I'm telling you this for a reason. I need you to know that all of that has nothing to do with what's going to happen to her, that her lovers are still presumed to be innocents. Jack felt like an icicle was boring into his skull. I'm not as sure. I understand, Your Majesty. The king sighed, and something like genuine remorse seemed to pass over his face. Something has happened. You're not going to like it. That day in the West, within moments of ingesting the natives' roots, Jack had begun to hallucinate. His hand made ghostly trails as he moved it back and forth in front of his face. The side of the next mountain over breathed in and out. A grey dot appeared in the periphery of his vision. In a matter of seconds, it was as large as his fist, then his head, then it was the size of a building. The tornado barreled into the side of the mountain. Jack screamed. He dived out of the way. As he huddled in on himself, Rocking back and forth on the cold stones, the tornado stopped. Then it began to speak. Jack never found out precisely how the king's beloved sister had been discovered to be a heretic. He visited her in the great tower the night before her execution. He tried to give her the invisibility shawl. You can escape. Go wherever you need to. I'll meet you. Marie gave him a small, sad smile and explained that the gods' martyrs did not run from their fate. We will meet again, Jack Lightfoot, but not in the West or the continent. We will dance forever in the fields of paradise. Jack begged and pleaded. For the first time since he was a very little boy, he openly cried. Then he screamed at her and called her an idiot and a fanatic and a stupid child. Throughout it all, Marie just stroked his cheek. And told him not to be sad the next day she defiantly performed the sign of the three as she was led up to the stone platform on the street some of her fellow heretics too crazy to care about consequences and too inconsequential for anyone to care what they thought performed it right back to her a lesser bishop said the prayer for sinful souls jack thought he might have seen him before in the great chapel he couldn't be sure Even in the elaborate robes of the supreme bishop, this replacement, Henry, was about as memorable as a snowflake in a blizzard. No one had seen or heard from Henry himself since the day Marie was arrested. When the dragon's flames licked up Marie's body, her last words were too soft for Jack to hear. He knew she must be making her final peace with the gods. He knew that. But all he could hear when he tried to imagine her voice in his head was... I don't want to die. That night, the king visited Jack in his chambers. A detachment of royal guards was stationed outside, but the king went in alone. He brought a bottle of very old whiskey, thousands of years old, and preserved by rare and expensive magic, the kind of thing Henry would have offered half his personal fortune for a taste of. At the sight of the king, half of Jack itched to commit regicide. He imagined snatching the bottle out of his majesty's hands, smashing it over the table, and using the jagged edge to slash the king's throat. He imagined himself bathed in royal blood as the guards ran in too late to try to stop him. The other half of Jack wanted to cry on his father's shoulder until he couldn't feel anything at all. Acting mechanically, Jack greeted the king and found two clean goblets with the whiskey. The king poured, and they both drank. It wasn't until the third whore that the king spoke. His voice was so sad and gentle that at first Jack thought he must have misheard. I remember why I was going to have you killed. Jack met the king's eyes. It was for looking at me like that. Your Majesty? The king sighed. I know that everything I do is necessary. In fact, I am certain of it. I have a nation to take care of. And since our break with the prelate, I must care for the souls as well. Everything I do is necessary. Jack looked away. Would you have a look that makes me sick with guilt? The memory of you looking at me like that keeps me up at night. I can't stand it. So are you going to kill me after all? The king didn't answer. Instead, he poured another drink. The island was home to thousands of dragons. Dragons of varying sizes and colors and purposes. There were dragons who pulled carts and carriages, dragons who burned peat for whiskey, and dragons who burned heretics in public executions. You could pass by the same dragons, hard at work performing the same functions, every day for years during a daily walk to your favorite cafe. Wild dragons, though. Dragons whose owners had released them or had never been domesticated in the first place never stayed in one place for long. Jack thought about that sometimes, what it might be like to be able to fly around the world according to your whims, never staying in one place long enough to feel the familiar sights and sounds of home close in on you like prison walls, never associating with the same fellows long enough that what happened to them could break your heart. A month later, he finally learned Henry's whereabouts. The former supreme bishop was being held in the great tower. The night before Henry was to be executed, Jack made the twenty-two-story climb to visit his friend. Henry looked like a beggar. His face and hands were dirty, he hadn't shaved in weeks, he smelled like a corpse. All Henry wanted to tell Jack about, the only thing, was where the dragon had taken him now. The tell-tale gleam of fanaticism was back in his eyes. For the first week, it was about Marie. That was all I could think about. I I wandered the streets and slept in churchyards. I just thought about her all day and all night. Jack nodded. I can't even close my eyes without... Henry cut him off, impatient to tell his story. Then I started to think about the scriptures. You know, what we three were doing is condemned there, don't you? Jack shifted uncomfortably. I'd supposed it must be. Henry was rocking back and forth, his eyes half closed. It is. In the same passage the prelate thinks stops anyone, even kings, from taking more than three wives. It says, clear as day, that no woman may have two husbands, nor lie with two men. As if they were both her husband. It says that. It's there. Jack said nothing, and Henry went on. I had always ignored that rationalized it away, or reasoned that others had greater sins so ours didn't matter. It was the same way I'd tell myself that my role in executing heretics didn't matter, since I didn't control their fate and the king would always have been able to find someone else to say the prayers when the moment came if I'd refused. Jack looked him in the eye at that, and then looked away. Henry went on. I used to be so very good at not thinking on these things that an inconvenient line or two of scripture was nothing for me. Now though, I could think of little else. Why would just gods condemn something so innocent? I loved her, you loved her, she loved us both, and in a different way, we both love each other. Jack itched to say something, to talk more about Marie, but Henry rushed on with his story. Where was the sin in her taking us both to her bed? Why would the gods object to people who are honest and who love each other doing what they will in a matter that harms no one? For hours and hours, day after day, I beseeched the gods to speak to me in my heart and put my questions to rest. I waited with a still small voice. Jack leaned forward. And? When he came down from the mountain, at the end of that day in the west, Jack had been greeted by a representative of the native tribe who could speak the islander tongue. The man's face was painted, and he looked naked by islander standards, but after an hour of talking to a tornado, Jack was desperate for a human company of any kind. The native looked at Jack and spoke with an accent refined enough to put most islander aristocrats to shame. You had a vision. They locked eyes, and the native nodded. It sure looks like it. They made their trade, and then Jack and the native sat on the ground and smoked a pipe. After a time, Jack opened up about his hallucinations. How he'd been sure he could understand what the voice from the tornado was telling him. How he was sure it was the most important thing he'd ever heard. How he couldn't remember now, and the not remembering was driving him to distraction. The native snorted. No one remembers. That's not the point. I don't think men's minds are built to be able to hold that kind of knowledge. Not really. That doesn't mean there's no point in searching. Jack shook his head in incomprehension. Surely your your tribe must have some knowledge of... The native cut him off with a dismissive gesture. White men have their magic and their science and their religion. We have our magic, and our science, and our religion. Your beliefs probably have some of the truth, and ours do too. But that's all. The native took another puff of his pipe and went on, his voice rich with frustration. Look, if I knew the thoughts of all the spirits, and the layout of the heavens, I wouldn't have just traded an expensive magical shawl for an islanded telescope. Why is it that so many of your people assume that our people know all the secrets of the universe? Jack had changed the subject in embarrassment, but his frustration about not knowing anything, not remembering what the tornado had told him, never went away. The first snow of the winter fell on the morning of Henry's execution. The crowd was massive. When people started to hear that the damned Supreme Bishop of the island was going to be put to death for heresy, Word travel fast. When Henry was led up to the stone platform, he raised his clenched fist in the air, kissed it, and held it still clenched to his heart. In the crowd, people began to mutter to each other, confused and uncertain about what they had just seen. Still assuming that Henry was about to die as a martyr for the extreme reformers like Marie, some people returned Henry's strange gesture with the sign of the three. That's when I put it together, Henry had told Jack the night before. In the most intense, the deepest state of prayer and longing that I had ever felt in my life, I realised the truth. No gods were speaking to me, because there are no gods. What? Jack had been bracing himself for the most exotic heresies, but never in a thousand, thousand years had he expected that. Gods are stories that we tell ourselves to explain things we don't understand, and stories that we tell children and peasants when we want to make them do what they're told. What the scriptures call the still, small voice is really just the voice of our own consciences. And that is all there is to it. The king always said, I always said, that we were breaking from the prelates so we might all be free from ignorance and superstition. Well, that road ends here." Jack had been planning on offering Henry the invisibility shawl as he had offered it to Marie. In that moment, as he looked into his friend's face at an expression that told him that Henry was already reconciled to a martyr's fate, Jack realized that he had a better idea. Jack's boots were damp from walking over the thin layer of snow. He made his way to the front of the platform just as the executioner finished tying Henry to the stake and went off to fetch the dragon. Jack ran his hand over the knife hanging from his belt. Then he took a deep breath, slipped on his invisibility shawl and began to run. He jumped onto the platform. There was startled murmuring behind him, but the new supreme bishop continued to read the prayer for sinful souls as if nothing had happened. Jack walked behind Henry took out his knife with one hand while keeping a firm grip on the shawl with the other and began to cut the ropes. Henry was yelling something, but it seemed to come from a great distance. Jack got his friend free and shoved him under the shawl. The new supreme bishop stopped talking. Everywhere else there was a cacophony of noise. Jack and Henry picked up their pace. Jack's vision was blurred by the snow and the faintly visible outline of the shawl. He almost ran into the executioner. He tossed the shawl onto the ground. The executioner looked up, startled. Jack slashed the knife through the air between them. The executioner ducked. Jack kicked the man as hard as he could. The executioner let go of the chain he had been using to lead the dragon onto the platform. Jack grabbed it. In the periphery of his vision, he could see guards rushing toward them. His heart hammered in his chest. Jack hefted himself onto the back of the dragon. The reptile's cold, leathery back felt strange beneath him. The dragon, clearly accustomed to following humans in all of their odd little wishes, made no move to buck him. Jack held out his hand for Henry. After a moment's hesitation, the former supreme bishop took it. Jack swung his friend behind him. He dropped the chain. When Jack had gone to the west, he had told himself that he was fleeing from a threat of execution and waiting out the king's anger. The truth is that the king would have calmed down in a matter of days. When he swallowed the native's root, even after being warned that it might leave him insane, he told himself that he was doing it in the same carefree spirit that had led him through countless nights of drunken escapades. When he'd formulated this escape plan last night, he'd told himself that it was the only way he could force Henry to let himself be saved. Now he knew better. The chain clattered to the stone floor beneath him. For a few seconds that stretched into a seeming eternity, the dragon stayed where it was. It didn't seem to realize that it was free, that no one was holding it, or commanding it, or stopping it from going wherever it wanted. Three guards began to paw at the dragon. Jack was suddenly and sickeningly certain that this had all been for nothing. Then, slowly, the dragon began to trot forward. Jack and Henry held on for dear life as the trot became a run. Jack didn't know what words the tornado had spoken. He didn't know the secrets of the universe, the layout of the heavens, whether there were five gods, or three, or none at all. He knew that he was done living among people who killed each other for answering those questions differently, that he was done with guessing from one day to the next whether his father was going to love him or hate him. Or having killed, that he needed to live some other kind of life. He didn't know where he would go or what he would do, but he knew there had to be something better than this. Wind and snowflakes whipped against his cheeks. The sky above him was dark. Jack could hardly see a foot in either direction. The dragon picked up speed. It flapped its wings, and then all at once it began to fly.
0: And welcome back. I've talked here before about my own beliefs and about Ben Burgess's endings, so wow, this one really hit home for me. I probably believe some different things than you do, and you probably believe or don't believe something different than me. That's cool. I don't know what the tornado or god or whatever whoever said any more than Jack does. I doubt anyone really knows. But I love the explorations of faith and religion and doubt. But when we start hating, hurting, and even killing each other because someone believes differently than we do, bullshit and blasphemy, my friends. We're the same. We can do better, no matter what you and I do or don't believe. So me, I'll be circling the skies with Jack, Henry, the dragons, and whoever else wants to explore. Feedback this week is for Peter S. Beagle's El Regalo, read by Emily Smith. The story of a young boy witch, not wizard, whose magical powers get him in over his head and has to get saved by his big sister. Oh my god, my daughter's gonna love this story when she's a bit older. Mostly people enjoyed it, with the main complaint or caveat being it was too long. Scattercat said, a pleasant if unsurprising little jaunt. It was slow and gentle and quietly amusing. High marks, although not quite top marks. I know Peter S. Beagle will be utterly crushed that a random asshole on a forum thought he wrote a pretty good story instead of an awesome story, but this is the price of freedom. Don't worry, Scattercat, we won't let him torture you. Rilteach said, When I started the story, I only had about five minutes to listen, with high plans of continuing later at work. After 10 minutes, I canceled my plans and just listened. Gee, that happens often with PodCastle. Curse you, eternal time suck. Thanks very much for those comments. You can let us know what you thought of this week's story at forum.escapeartist.net. Drop by and say hi. We'd love to hear from you. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a donation to PodCastle.org. Your donations are what make it possible for us to bring you the best in fantasy fiction week after week. We can't do it without you, and every single dollar helps. Thanks. If you're a monthly subscriber or have donated $50 or more since the beginning of the year, we're sending you some extra stories. Yeah, yeah, the Alphabet Quartet, but maybe even some extra, extra stories. More on that later. We'd like to take a moment to thank our latest stunt dragon rider, Josh Herman. Josh is a recent convert to the PodCastle cause, that cause being free fantasy stories every week, people. His uh, first time was listening to Carrie Vaughn's A Hunter's Ode to His Bait. Josh is a writer who is currently working as a government systems administrator. Thanks for your support, Josh. We'll throw another one on the barbie for you, mate. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. The court here at Podcastle is made up of the elegant Dan Leckie, the rakish sound producer Peter Wood, and your royal bastard editors, Anna Schwind and myself. On behalf of all of us here, thanks for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with dancing Chinese dragon ghost hunters, and it'll be fun for the whole family. Until then, hang on to that dragon while you're flying the not-so-friendly skies, and we'll see you in a week. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Mahatma Gandhi said, God has no religion.